Hello, I'm Alex Grodnick, and you're listening to The Virtual MBA Show, a podcast where I sit down with the most interesting people in and around top MBA programs, as well as the people that I work with in entertainment and tech. Today, I'm sitting here with my buddy who now lives in Canada, but is in LA for a few days, Alex Angelov. Alex and I used to work together at Houlihan Loki. He's a super smart, bright, funny, cool, handsome guy. So thanks for being here, Alex. Thank you very much, Alex. I appreciate you having me and I, I thank you for the kind words. Yeah. So what are you doing in L.A.? So my uh, my roommate from when I lived in L.A. and also a friend from university, he uh, after we did our banking years, went to San Francisco, worked at a hedge fund and now recently moved back to L.A. to work at another fund. And I figured I'd give him a visit as well as all my good friends from back in L.A., including yourself. And I, I figured December is always a good time to see people because they're less busy and they'll have time to see me. Yeah, I'll, I'm honored. And this was a spur of the moment thing. We grabbed lunch at this Bulgarian restaurant we always go to. You're, you're Bulgarian. I am. And then I said, you know what? You're an interesting guy. You should you should be on the pod. Yeah, I'll try and uh, do it justice. Okay, so we met. It was your first job yeah. in banking. Tell us kind of your story, how you got there. Sure. So I grew up in Canada, to, to your earlier point. I was born in Bulgaria. After Bulgaria, my family moved to South Africa, lived in Johannesburg for a few years, and then after that, moved to Toronto, Canada. Um, growing up, I was uh, I was always interested in business. I would say the passion probably kicked in early high school, where I started taking a few business courses. Got involved. Um, I was president of the stock market competition. I was part of something called Junior Achievers, where we ran a business in the school and sold shares in the company, and you know had a variety of projects that raised money um, with the intent of giving a return to investors. And then after that, I decided to go to Western for my undergraduate program, which is in London, Ontario. And the reason for that is because um, in years three and four, Western offers uh, you the opportunity to go to the Richard Ivey School of Business, which is one of the best business undergraduate programs in Canada. Um, I think I've heard you describe it as the Wharton of Canada. I, I have used that term uh, simply because it's, it's highly revol- uh, the learning structure is the case study method. They're the second largest publisher of case studies in the world after Harvard. Um, So to my knowledge, in terms of U.S. schools, the only comparable in terms of the learning strategy would be Warden. And then also our placement into investment banking um, would be similar in terms of percent of the school population going into it. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I'm joking. It's an incredible school. I call it investment banking soldiers you guys make like you come out and your resumes are like order and file of class rank and it's it's like an impressive program i've never seen anything like it yeah no for sure it's uh it's definitely interesting and it was uh it's funny because it's one of those programs where the first six months absolutely destroy you because everyone's trying to get that lucrative summer internship at a u.s-based investment bank um and a lot of the classes have heavy participation so Every day you're preparing case studies and trying to sound as smart as you can, um, staying into the wee hours of the night and just to get an investment banking job where you're going to work even harder than you did for that six months. Right. But yeah, that was the idea. Okay. So you're growing up 
abroad and then living in Toronto, going to school at University of Western Ontario. Yeah. Uh, so how'd you get out to Los Angeles? Yeah. So I guess the notion of doing investment banking started um, when I was a first year in university. As part of getting into Ivy, you had to do a lot of extracurriculars. So I joined the investment club and I was lucky enough to be chosen as an analyst. I think they only chose one or two first years each year to be part of the analyst uh, structure in the in the club and that was my first exposure to people who had done investment banking in the summer and these were like some of the smartest guys I've ever met they were very social thoughtful and you know it was the first time in my life where I was like I want to be like these guys these were role models and all of them had really good grades and had had gotten the the banking internship so I I got really involved in the club um, by my third year I ended up being fund manager by my fourth year, I was co-president of the club. So I kind of grew up in the club, building this network of people who went into investment banking. And by the time I was third year in Ivy recruiting, some people had already gone on to lucrative private equity jobs. So I was fortunate to not only have the strong recruiting network of Ivy, but then also have the investment club. So yeah, third year Ivy comes around, uh, recruiting season starts, which is after your first call it four month semester where your grades come in and all these banks come to the Ivy to recruit. And yeah, I, I recruited um, both in the US and Canada. I had a few offers in Canada, but I think the general notion is that you should always try and get the US job just because it's easier to transition back to Canada from the US than it is to start in Canada and then convince some US firms that you know your job in Canada was was qualified and and worthy of their consideration. Um, so yeah, interviewing in the U.S., I had an offer from J.P. Morgan in New York, but I interviewed with uh, Houlihan's Restructuring Group in L.A., which is where I ended up meeting you. And I don't know something about just the the notion of one L.A. I grew up in Bulgaria on a beach town, so being back in the sun year round was was desirable. But then also the people I met at Houlihan were really smart and thoughtful and. The idea of working with companies um, that are on the brink of bankruptcy or have filed and understanding what went wrong, I thought would be a really valuable learning experience. So I decided to, at least for the summer, steer clear of Wall Street and, and try out this new interesting thing in L.A. Went out there for my summer, ended up really enjoying it, really liked the people. So after that summer, I signed up for the two year investment banking analyst contract full time and returned back to Canada for my fourth year. Right. So everything we're now talking about is right after undergrad, all pre-business school. And talk to us about how people view these investment banking jobs right out of undergrad. They view them as kind of a stepping stone, two-year type job into private equity hedge fund world. Is that kind of how all you and your classmates thought about it? Yeah, I think the reputation of banking was always that it's it's really grueling um, on in both in terms of hours, emotional psyche. Um, so most people viewed it as, yeah, it's the best possible career coming out of a business program, not only because it pays a lot, but some of the skills they teach you are extremely valuable from Excel modeling to attention to detail to, you know, working with high energy, extremely intelligent individuals, um, working long hours, all of those are, uh, valuable skill sets to have as you progress through your career. So I'd say most of my friends definitely took the investment banking job, understanding that it was the best possible thing they can put on their resume. And, you know, for people like me who had student debt, it was the quickest way to get out of student debt just because they offered the the highest salary. Right. Um, so yeah, I definitely, definitely viewed for the most part as 
a potential um, stepping stone that opened a lot of doors after you had proven yourself for the first few years. So then talk about how those doors get opened pretty immediately. Yeah, it's a it's like a really fast process. I think by March or April, so call it eight months into your first year as an investment banking analyst, you start getting all these calls and emails from headhunters saying that you would be a perfect candidate for XYZ private equity or hedge fund. And you start flying around across North America interviewing at these places. Very often, you know, one eight hour super day of interviews would lead you to getting an offer that you're not going to start that job, you know, for another 14, 16 months. So yeah, I, I interviewed in March slash April for me, um, I really liked LA. It was warm, but I missed a lot of, you know, the friends and family I had grown up in Canada and wanted a way of getting back there. So, uh, I interviewed with Onyx, which, uh, is the largest private equity shop in Canada. Our last fund was $5.7 billion. So I interviewed with them. I think it was a quick 30 minute phone interview when I was at Houlihan's offices. And then they flew me down for call it a 10 hour super day. And before I was on the flight back to LA, I had the offer. So yeah, uh, you know, eight months into the first year, I accepted this private equity offer. And I honestly think, I, I think it's to the detriment of both investment banking and private equity, because ideally nobody likes their first job out of university. It's like a, everything in your life changes from having somewhat level of control in your schedule and being the top of the university in terms of, you know, uh, in your graduating class to, to now being nobody and being at the bottom of a hierarchical structure. So it's tough. It's, it's tough, not only on like the, the work hours, but your emotions. And especially if you're in a new city without friends and family there and you're only eight months in, you don't know if you really like it. You're just going through shell shock. And now someone's coming and offering you a, a much higher paying salary and a different kind of work. And, and you're willing to jump. And for private equity, I mean, these people barely, you know, most people haven't even closed their first deal and you're asking them what they want to do with the rest of their lives. They haven't had enough time to figure it out, let alone, you know, in certain cases, prove themselves that they would be um, good candidates for private equity. So it's just competitive, right? Everyone wants uh, good talent. And that's why each year it starts earlier and earlier. I think last year when I was at Onyx, the recruiting cycle for private equity started maybe as early as January. So it's gone from April to January. Right. And then you finish up your 18 months left in banking and then you go, so you're 22 when you get these offers and 23, 24 when you start. So tell yep. us like what the money is like at these uh, buy side funds. How much are they throwing at these 24 year olds? So anywhere between call it like 220,000 to 400,000 annual salary you would see being offered. And at the time in banking, when you're getting this, this salary offered to you, you're making anywhere between maybe 120,000 to 180,000 would be my guess. Right. So I mean, high, high ranges for people just a couple of years out of school. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the work they're offering is also really interesting because you're going from a sell side advisory role to actually, you know, looking at and investing in businesses. Right. So a lot of people who are interested um, in that aspect coming out of university may have taken investment banking once again for the skill set it offered. But their their goal is to build out their their full business sense. Right. Everyone wants to take that next step into private equity. So you did it. I did it. You finished up in LA. 
moved back to cold gray. It's so cold. Yeah. It's one, it's one thing I failed to appreciate. I remember my first winter back in Canada and trying to start the car and I had to wait 10 minutes for the <laughs> engine to warm up. And that's just something you forget when you move to LA that some, somewhere people have to wait for their cars to warm up. Right. So talk to us about what you did at Onyx. Yeah. So at Onyx, I looked at a variety of different businesses um, with the goal of purchasing a controlling stake in each of them. So I found the work very interesting because your goal, your fundamental goal is to understand what a business did and how it made money. And on top of that, you're, you know, there's things like pricing trends, volume trends, um, what the competitive landscape looks like. Is it a fragmented market? Is it concentrated? Is this company a market leader? Does it have a strong installed base? There's a variety of other factors, but at the fundamental level, you're just learning about businesses, which is something I've always found very interesting. And at Onyx, the program, it was a generalist program. So I got exposure into business services, industrials, healthcare, aerospace, retail. I looked at countless businesses and I thought it really, you know, investment banking had a steep learning curve, but private equity even more so, I'd say. So I found like I was learning a ton. I had more responsibility and it was, I thoroughly enjoyed the job. But for the most part, the hours were still very demanding. Um, but I would say the work was, uh, was a little bit more fulfilling in terms of um, what my interests were. Right. So tell us what the usual path is. You do two years of banking. Two years of private equity. Yeah. So typically, if I look at most, you know, of the um, my Ivy classmates or people who had done it before or after me, they'll they'll try to get that U.S. based investment banking job, then go to a top tier private equity firm for two years, and then try and go into a top MBA program, whether that be Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, etc. And that's driven by two things. One, a lot of the private equity programs are, are, you know, to a certain extent, two years and out where they want you to get the MBA and then potentially return. And others is that people view it as a way to figure out what they want to do because there's been kind of this clear set path from a you're trying to optimize your personal economics. You're trying to open the most doors possible. And this is the clear cut route to do so. And then business school gives you an option to just kind of re-roll into the recruiting cycle, maybe try something else for a summer, build out your network and gives you two years of maybe, you know, less intensity than you had when you were in private equity to figure out what you really want to do with your life. Right. And so is that the path you took? No, no, that is not the path I took. So I left private equity back in September. So it's been call it three to four months um, since I left. And what I always wanted to do and what I was passionate about is to run and manage a business. Um, I've always thought my skill set was that of being a good leader and manager. And in terms of leadership roles I had in university or group projects, I always got a lot of value out of that and thought I I was good. Um, And I didn't find that necessarily staying in private equity would lend to that skill set because let's say you end up making partner, um, you're working with a team of three to four people and they're all call it, you know, A plus individuals who are hardworking, highly motivated by the financial salary and are just, you know, you almost, they're self-managing. Um, so your ability to work with a diverse um, set of people and optimize each individual's talents is, 
is not really grown and, and utilized there. So I wanted to, to run a business. And for me, the thought of going to an MBA, I mean, you can, you can do your typical pros cons list. So on the pro side, you learn a lot. You have some of the smartest, most accomplished teachers, professors giving these lectures, and there's a ton of learning to do. There's a lot of great speakers that go there. And number two, you grow out your network a lot. You meet a lot of really interesting people. So there's a, there's a big valuable opportunity there. And the, the opportunity cost is pretty clear. You give up time and, and to go to a lot of these U.S.-based schools, whether it be Harvard, Stanford, Warren, whatever, uh, my understanding is it's call it maybe $200,000 that, that you're putting into that all in. I think it might even be a little more. You tell me, is that, yeah. do I have the right number in mind? That's a good ballpark. Yeah. So ballpark, call it 200000 in in two years. And my, my viewpoint was, okay, so I'm 26, I'm not married, I don't have any kids, I had student debt coming out of university, I paid that off through banking, and I now saved a lot of money living a relatively conservative lifestyle in private equity. Um, so I had money, I, ha- I have a decent network um, in terms of Ivy's a really strong community. So you have people who you graduated with who are off doing different things and are highly successful. There's alumni that are more than happy to support you. So I had the Ivy network. Plus I had the finance network. People like yourself who I've met and have gone on and done interesting things. Everyone I'm still close with. So of course I can improve my network by going uh, to do an MBA. And the second aspect of learning, yeah, I I definitely think there's a lot to learn. and an MBA can offer me that. But I also think I've been fortunate to go to a really strong undergraduate business program. And, you know, from dealing with restructuring and investment banking to companies, you know, that are, that are, you have filed for bankruptcy. I remember I worked on one prominent, well-funded startup. It was an all electric vehicle and they got sold through a 363 asset sale and bankruptcy. So going from that to the investing side in private equity and, you know, doing deep diligence on a multi-billion dollar market leader. I feel like the the experience I have in the learning is is strong. Is there more to do? For sure. But I don't think my goal of um, running a business was absolutely hinging on me going to business school. Right. So I figured, okay, let's let's just get out of the finance bubble and step back and figure out what you really want to do in your life and how you should go about doing that. And so for that, that's why my decision was not to take an MBA after the the two years in private equity. Okay. So what'd you decide? Yeah. So initially I, I thought about, okay, so I want to run a business. The most, I guess, traditional route that you hear about people running businesses at such a young age is by starting your own business. So I spent some time trying to think of ideas, uh, but you know, I, I felt like I came up with some pretty good ones, but I would go online and I would find five companies already doing the same thing who had raised, call it 50 million from VCs in San Francisco. So I I didn't come across a compelling idea and I didn't want to continue just standing there waiting for an idea to hit me. And, you know, if I was being honest with myself, like what I really wanted to do was run a business, not start a business. I wanted to find a good business and continue growing it and apply my ambition and skill set to just improving everything throughout the organization. So what I came across was they call it entrepreneurism uh, through acquisition. And the most traditional form of doing this is through what is called a search fund. And what a search fund is, is 
you raise an initial pool of capital to fund a young entrepreneur's search for an established small to medium-sized business. And that, that period of searching takes, call it one or two years. And then they'll find the business, find the owner who's looking to either retire or take on a reduced role in day-to-day operations and liquidize uh, a controlling portion of the business. So you look for this business and uh, you end up acquiring it. And then you raise through the acquisition, you raise a follow-on fund of capital to actually fund the business. And then you, you become CEO of that business and run it for a period of, call it five to seven years, trying to improve the organization in any way, shape or form that you can, whether that be, you know, improving the sales operations, expanding into new geographies, uh, maybe doing some tuck on acquisitions, a variety of different strategies to grow the business. And then at some point, there's a liquidation event that gives return to the initial investors of the fund. And historically, these models have been quite successful. I think the pre-tax IRR is something like 35%. And when you compare that to private equity returns, they're call it 20%. And that's really good compared to what you're getting in the market these days. So I, as I read about this model, the, it clicked as something that I really wanted to do. And, and to be fair, it is something that has come out of MBAs historically. Stanford Business School is the what I would say the founding school of these search funds where a lot of MBAs get funding through their professors and the local investor community, and they go on and try and find these businesses to run. But that's, it's definitely not limited to MBAs. And it's something that I think fits perfectly with my passion and my goal. So that's what I'm currently um, looking into. And I'll likely fundraise the search portion of the capital in the new year. That sounds great. So you said that historically, these are kind of an MBA driven people have backgrounds and, and this similar backgrounds to yours. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's going to be detrimental to you not to have an MBA while doing this? Uh, I think different people may have a preference uh, in terms of the investors may have a preference for me to have an MBA, but at the end of the day, you're backing the individual, right? You know, there's no proof that someone will end up finding a business and you know, your search capital may go to zero if they end up spending two to three years looking for something and, and don't end up making that acquisition. So it's really an individualistic um, decision where they're backing someone and there have been people who have done it without their MBAs. Maybe they, they have to prove a little more because they don't have that certificate and they don't have that formal training. But it's something that I'm quite confident in given my background and um, undergrad that, that I think people will be comfortable with it. Right. So hopefully I can overcome that. Uh, If not, I mean, an MBA is never out. um, It's something I would consider. But once again, it's something I'm ready to do right now. And uh, maybe I'll be more prepared two years later, two years down the road, that is. But I think sometimes you just got to take a risk. And if you have an idea, you should you should do it now, not wait to try and implement it. Yeah, two years. I completely agree. So talk to us about logistics. How do you do this? Like, do you identify a specific industry types of businesses? One thing to note is there's two ways um, you can approach doing this search fund. The traditional way is you'll go out to these call it serial search fund investors who invest in call it 10, 15 funds each year and you'll raise um, your capital pool through them, and they understand the model, they understand the risks, and they're they're in line with helping you throughout the process, and will be there for the eventual uh, acquisition capital that you need to raise. So that's the traditional route. 
the less traditional but also viable route is to uh, self-fund the search process and then use friends and family to actually raise the acquisition capital. So that's something I can also do in this current situation because I've saved the money that I've made in private equity. Now, if I were to spend that money to go to business school, I would rely solely on the externally funded option. Whereas right now, I am in a position to take that full risk, use my um, capital to fund the search. And then I've had conversations with um, former colleagues, friends, family, and it's completely viable. I would have to look at a smaller uh, enterprise value, call it in the two to three million range versus the typical maybe five to 20 million because I don't have institutional capital, but it's still very possible to achieve my goal of running, learning and growing a small business at, at my age. So that's something that, you know, that flexibility wouldn't be there if I used all the capital I've saved in private equity to pay for business school, which is what a lot of my peers and, you know, alumni have done historically. And a lot of them face the issue of, okay, well, now now I'm back at zero in terms of net wealth and they end up taking that Wall Street job or Bay Street or Avenue of the Stars. They go back into banking and private equity to make up the money that they lost going to to business school. And I, I see it happen all the time where people leave finance saying, this isn't a this isn't for me. I want to figure out what I want to do. They go to business school and they're back to square one where, you know, they want the most prestigious job coming out of business school and they end up right back into finance. So Right. So this So that's a consideration. This search fund process, allocating $200,000 to it instead of allocating the money to business school, it's kind of a comparative type two-year uh, process. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh I think the average search period is something like 16 to 18 months. So, yeah, you're spending 2 years looking for this company and and there's a learning process in that of itself, right? You're you're reaching out to businesses, cold calls, cold emails, getting to know owners, trying to see if they're interested in selling their business to you, trying to interest trying to see if they're actually interested in you to take on their legacy. So you're not only selling your services, but you're selling your personality. You're building relationships with intermediaries to show you deals. You're learning, you know, you're diligencing a variety of industries. So you're increasing your business knowledge and and maybe you're looking at things, uh, uh, you know, in a different lens than you would in private equity because these are smaller companies. So, you know, the the number of employees, the the tasks of each employee matter a lot more because they're not multi-billion dollar organizations where you can stay at the high level and say, OK, well, pricing has gone up three percent every year for the last five years. Volume trends are solid. You know, there's pricing power in this industry. It's a market leader. There's a sustainable competitive advantage. And, you know, all those things check the boxes. You have to go a little more deep here because if you miss something, there's there's a smaller margin of error because it's a small business. Right. And these are all business school topics that you're talking about, competitive advantages and margins and pricing power. So it is kind of along the lines of what a lot of these startup guys advocate of the anti-business school track where they say take $200,000, start a business, fail, and you will have learned just as much, if not more, had you taken the money and gone to business school. Yeah. Yeah. Same concept. And listen, there's no crystal ball, right? This might be in hindsight, the wrong decision. It might be the best thing I've ever done. Um, you just have to weigh 
the opportunity costs and think about what you want and who you are and what's best for you. And you take a risk either way. So, and I like the idea of betting on yourself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And doing it now instead of waiting two years out to make that bet on yourself. If you can do it now, why not? Right. Why not? Yeah. And this doesn't preclude you from going to business school in two years after you've done this either. No, I, I think one would look at a, a application and, and see someone taking a bet on themselves as, as a risk taker. And you know, that along with a good background and a good GMAT score. Yeah. I mean that that's always an option going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So get back to logistics here yeah. quickly. How do you do this? How you do it. So step one, you fundraise the search capital. Um, you can do that, as I said, self-funded, or you go out and do a roadshow and visit institutions, high net worth individuals, people within your network, and you raise, call it, you know, $500,000. After that, you set up, uh, you incorporate, you set up an office, maybe you get some interns, and you start looking at businesses. There's, As I mentioned, there's two ways to go about that. You have you know, an inbound process where you're building relationships with small business brokers, small accounting firms, lawyers, people that these businesses would deal with who want to get sold. Um, and then there's a proprietary pipeline where you're reaching out to owners of, you know, these companies. And typically you're, you're looking at characteristics. I think you you alluded to this earlier, but what kind of companies or industries you're focused on? Really like the, the traditional is you want something with a sustainable competitive advantage, you want, you know, good operating margins, you want revenue growth, you want opportunities for future revenue growth. And you generally want it to be asset and capital light with it with a little less complexity, uh, just given the fact that you are, by definition, an unproven operator. So that lends itself to certain industries, whether that be business to business services, um, a lot of business process outsourcing, some software as a service companies, those have been the traditional targets of a lot of these search funds. But using those high level parameters, you're, you're evaluating, you know, companies across North America and really trying to find something that fits with these characteristics. The owner is willing to sell and it's at a price that you're comfortable with. So a lot of things have to fall into place for this to work. And that's why, you know, one in five end up not making an acquisition. One in five. One in five. Yeah. So that there has to be a lifestyle component to this too. You come out of banking and private equity, working crazy hours, and now you're going to be still working intensely, but for yourself. And I imagine you'll have more time for also other things that you yourself like to do, right? Yeah, that's right. Although, although you know, it was never an issue with the hours. It was more um, the lack of control and the lack of working for yourself with a clear upside. And as I mentioned, it's it's a different skill set you're building in, in investment banking and private equity than actually running a business. Sure. But what I'm getting on that question is what do you like to do for fun? <clears throat> what do I like to do for fun? Sure. So I've um I've played soccer since I was six. I'm Bulgarian. It's it's pretty much like the national sport of Bulgaria. That and weightlifting. Funny, funny fact is the Bulgaria has the third most uh, weightlifting medals, uh, Olympic weightlifting medals in history, wow. which is funny because the country itself only has a population of last time I checked, it was seven million. So I guess my other hobby, which is calisthenics, is in line with weightlifting. And that's something I learned here in L.A. when I would spend my weekends in uh, Santa Monica biking down the path. I saw a lot of people doing uh, body weight training. That's what calisthenics is, body weight training. They were doing handstands and 
muscle ups, which is where you do a pull up and go over the bar and maybe you'll jump over the bar while doing that pull up. And I thought to myself, okay, well, this might be something I'm interested in. And, you know, you can attest as I was at Houlihan, I started getting better and better at handstands and all these things. So now that's a, it's a passion for me. And it's a, it's an interesting form of exercise because I've been going to the gym since maybe I was in grade 11 and it was always, you know, you work out these muscle groups for the purpose of looking aesthetically good. Um, but calisthenics is a little different where, I mean, you're just trying to get a certain function, a, a body function or movement that's extremely difficult. And in the process of working towards that and building one, you become a much better athlete and you feel great about yourself, but you also end up looking really good and being in good shape. And that was something that I, I got very passionate about while at Houlihan and living in LA. Right. I mean, you had the chin up bars in the office. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was doing office handstands at midnight, um, just to like break in between <laughs> work. Broke, broke the door jam to the printer. Yeah. Yeah. We got banned from using the pull up bar after that. And you unfortunately. were super regimented about what you ate. You had yeah. like chicken and brown rice and nuts every day. But, but I love my cheat days. And, uh, over the last 10 days, I've probably gained maybe like seven or eight pounds prior to coming here. I was very strict. I was eating chicken, brown rice, steamed veggies every day for lunch. I was pre-making the meals on Sunday so I could continue working throughout the day and, and not have to go out and grab something to eat. Um, but then I came here and I want to go to all my favorite places, whether it's the Bulgarian, you know, aroma cafe or tonight I'm going to get Gulfstream ribs. Yeah, that's our spot. The I, Gulfstream did, ribs. I did some sugar fish last night. Ooh, I mean, there's so yeah. many good places that it's hard to go on vacation to a place that you spend two years at and then, you know, get something extremely healthy. You, you tend to indulge all your favorite spots in those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, this was fun. Thanks for being on the pod. Yes, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it, and I wish you the best of luck with it. Okay, thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. And thanks to you guys for listening. You can check us out on iTunes or virtualmbashow.com or wherever you find podcasts. And yeah, we'll be back soon with much more. <laughs>